Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. Concentration camps don't seem to have much to do with travel and exploration, since the story of the concentration camp really is a story of immobility. But travel and forced detention are joined in strange and important ways. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Andrea Pitzer talks about her book, One Long Night, a global history of concentration camps, one of the Smithsonian's 10 best history books for 2017. Pitzer's work has been featured in the Washington Post, USA Today, Slate, and Lapham's Quarterly. To research her book, Pitzer traveled to a dozen countries on four different continents. She talks about history, travel, and offers a preview of her new book project on the Arctic. Andrea Pitzer, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me in today. So your new book, One Long Night, tells the global history of concentration camps. And I think that for many listeners, maybe the idea that concentration camps have a global history is surprising. Well, that's part of why I wanted to write the book, because I think that for the first half of the century, this word, this phrase concentration camp existed and people understood what it meant. And then somehow after World War II, we lost both its meaning and that earlier history, that pre-World War II history. And I wanted to kind of go in search of where did they come from and how did we get to World War II and then what happened afterward. And so telling that story became important because I found that there really wasn't a lot out there that looked at the overall history. You know, uh, when I I read your book, I immediately started uh, looking back at your first book, which was uh, The Secret History of Vladimir Dabakov. And that story, it's kind of a running, seems like it's almost a kind of running story of, of continuous exile, um, a kind of intellectual biography of him. But you started off talking about his father's imprisonment. How are the two books connected? Well, there's a little part of it that is connected. I actually did go to the prison in St. Petersburg that his father was held in. And it's still an operational prison today. It was kind of a strange moment. I just went there. (laughs) I didn't like contact anyone and started wandering through one part of it and then sort of realized there was going to be nobody to sort of grab hold of or, or interview. And it ended up being this very eerie feeling of this prison his father had been in, you know, more than a century ago and to sort of be there today. But 
the more direct link that's sort of akin to that, but even more closely tied uh, in terms of family imprisonment was his brother, Sergei, Mm -hmm. who was less than a year different in age from him. It was his younger brother. And his brother, Sergei, had been detained and held in a concentration camp in Germany as a homosexual and then released and then was put back in and went to a place in northern Germany called Neuengamme. Uh, a camp there and died there shortly before the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. And going to that former campsite uh, where there's now a memorial and doing research really made me want to think about this whole part of history more. And it was really the, this kind of detention came up again and again in Nabokov's work. And I went to look for a general history of concentration camps and mm-hmm. I didn't find one. There wasn't one in English. There's one in French that has some very good research on uh, communist camps. So, you know, behind the Iron Curtain and in some other parts of the world and certainly the Gulag. But I didn't find anything comprehensive that was sort of global, in my opinion, Um, although, again, the French work is quite good on a number of topics. And there was nothing in English. And I thought, oh, this needs to be my next book. Huh. You know, you start the uh, the story of uh, One Long Night with the American Civil War. And I found that really interesting. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your decision to start, start it there. Well, it's a little bit complicated. Where do you start something that's global? You know, um, yeah. you have to sort of pick a point. And the book is mostly framed by when the phrase appears to, and, and my definition, my working definition for the book, I should say, of concentration camp is the mass detention of civilians without trial, usually on the basis of identity uh, that they don't have control over. So ethnicity or race or religious belief you know, or religious tradition, although sometimes it is party affiliation and things like that. But once I saw in the 1890s in Cuba where this phrase emerged, I realized I needed to sort of roll things back just a little bit further than that because the first camps arose in the midst of this rebellion in Cuba that was framed in the U.S. at the time very much in terms of what had happened with the Confederacy during the Civil War and some of the U.S. responses to that war, particularly the Lieber Code, which was a Mm -hmm. sort of a humanitarian code that was developed. And it didn't have a huge role to play during the war, but then became the basis of a lot of humanitarian and international law after the war. And that Mm -hmm. became then the basis of some things later through a circuitous route, like the Geneva Conventions. And we also think of Hague, uh, the Hague Conventions. And so, um, you know, if you have to sort of pick a starting point, this idea of total war, this idea of putting down rebellions and how countries ought to behave in response to that, what really is permissible sort of sets the stage for the emergence of this phrase and and this detention uh, concentration camp name that we get in the 1890s. But it's also important to say that there are lots of things before concentration camps that were quite similar. Mm -hmm. There is this sort of turn that we have through technology to them, but Native American reservations, parts of the Spanish mission system, to a lesser degree, certain elements of slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, forced labor under the czars, forced labor in the Roman and Chinese imperial uh, eras. You know, these all contributed to this idea in some way. Yeah, I found that especially interesting when you were just mentioning the Lieber Code, which I didn't know about. And it seems almost kind of like a Trojan horse in a way, because it does offer some 
protections against torture and I, I can't remember the, uh, the all of the specifics, but uh, it seems very reasonable when you first read it, but then also essentially uh, accepts and sanctions um, detention of civilians. And I was I was thinking that it really kind of I think makes the point that uh, you're making in the book that concentration camp is something with a, a genealogy, a history. And I, I was thinking when I was reading that, that's kind of the inside joke among historians is that, you know, readers are looking for good stories and historians are looking for good context. You know, right. we're always, you know, <laughs> let me tell you uh, not about the story, but everything behind it. But I actually really appreciate that you're actually trying to do both in, and doing and succeeding in doing both uh, in one long night. Still, I think that the term concentration camp is so freighted as a term in society because of the Nazi camps. I was wondering if you find that people resist the idea of attaching concentration camp to these other historical uh, examples for fear of diluting it. Has that been a reaction to your book? And, and if so, how do you respond to it? Interestingly, it hasn't been a reaction to the book, but it has been a reaction when I've written some smaller pieces, when people have invited me to write editorials uh -huh. or different things from people that I think maybe didn't actually read the piece and certainly haven't read the book. Because I think that there's a real, there's a very reasonable position to take to have this fear of diluting the idea of the concentration camp. And what I tried to do in the book, and you know, I hope I did it well, I certainly tried to attend to that issue, was to say that concentration camps were the name that all these historical places already had for almost four decades yeah. from the 1890s, you know, in the, during the Boer War in Southern Africa, during the Herero uprising next door in Southwest Africa, now Namibia, um, in Cuba, in the Philippines, around the globe during World War One, when this kind of detention became very normal and much less lethal for a certain period of time, which then set the stage for the gulag and for Nazi camps and that you can't get to those you can't get to Auschwitz without going through all those other stages first because it had to be normalized. It had to be accepted. It had to be seen as reasonable for governments to do this, to tell people to register, to sign up, to turn themselves in, to ride out their time as pariahs during some real or invented national crisis. And they had to have the belief mm -hmm. that they would come out and the world had to believe that they would come out as they had, let's say during World War I at the end of the conflict. And all that prior history of things that were called at the time concentration camps made those Nazi camps both possible and actually that was their identity for their first several years. The death camps don't come in until later. And so part of what the book is, is an attempt to absolutely acknowledge the horror of the Holocaust uh -huh. and to explain how the death camps came into being and that they're a singular moment in history in which the German nation turned against its own war interests to assassinate an entire people as efficiently as possible through death factories. There's nothing else like that in the history of the camps, but you have to have all that other history of things that were called concentration camps before it. So I kind of want to reclaim that term, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, in fact, I think it's actually striking in your chapter on on World War Two, where people are talking about like, yeah, we've we've seen this before uh, with the gulags or the development of the gulags in the 30s. And and while those were awful and I think people knew they were awful, they weren't death camps. And I, so I thought I thought that was actually really interesting, those those links, you know, to get to this issue of um of your project overall, I was thinking, wow, at one level, at a kind of surface level, a study of uh, the history of concentration camps seems to have nothing to do with travel and exploration. It's in a sense, it's a kind of history of how do we keep people from moving where they want to go. But at this other level, it seems like it's so intimately connected to movement and to travel and extreme experiences. I was wondering if you saw those two things linked. Yeah, I would say on two, I haven't thought about it quite in those terms before, but I would say that on two levels, it does sort of tie in um, on the first level of the book itself. So much of how we can move in the world and what we have available to us is based on our identity. And as you said, camps were often about setting people outside of society, you know, removing their ability to move, removing their ability to be part of their own society or often anyone else's, it is kind of tied up. It's sort of the opposite of this ability to go into history, to enter history and be a part of history in with some agency. You know, it's, it's actually the removal mm-hmm. of people from history in some ways. Um, and so the concentration camp is almost the opposite of the thing they're talking about. But then on a personal level, I wanted to go to six continents to do research. I really wanted to go to every continent that it had some of these kinds of detention camps and see the sites myself. Uh The publisher was quite generous, I have to say, but it was turned out not to be enough time or money to do that. I ended up going to four continents. And I I think that travel and exploration that I did uh, on the ground, you know, I used a lot of secondary sources. I spoke with a lot of experts. I used just, I tried to have as wide a range of sources as possible, but I have to say when it came down to it, that travel and that physically being present in Guantanamo, in the Rohingya camps in Myanmar, was as important as any any part of what I did. Huh. You know, since you brought up the travel uh, that you had to do for this book, uh, just so that listeners know, you uh, traveled to Poland, to Germany, Russia, the Czech Republic, France, Switzerland, Estonia, Chile, Argentina, Myanmar, and Cuba at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, that's a pretty amazing research plan for the book. When you go to these places, is your goal primarily uh, research-oriented or is it uh, experiential that you feel like it's really necessary to to see the locations um, to be able to write about it effectively? I think it's a combination. For me, it, there is my my the very first seeds of this book, which I mentioned when I went to where Nabokov's brother had died in northern Germany, came when I walked from one end of the camp to the other, because you can see where the original barbed mm-hmm. wire, they have still have the posts up, but they took the wire down. But you can see where the original large enterprise of the camp had existed. And walking from one side to the other, I don't remember exactly how many minutes it was, but it was like 15 or 20 minutes. And it was huge. And before I had started that work on 
Nabokov's family and his brother, I hadn't even heard of the camp. It's actually quite a large one in the Nazi camp system, but I hadn't heard of it as just an educated general reader, you know, more than a decade ago. And that was astounding to me. Yeah. So there is something about the physical experience of being in the place that I think is super important. And in some ways that was, again, as important as anything. And in other cases, it really depended on the site, whether I went and did sort of original research. When I went to Chile, for instance, I actually sat down with several survivors who had been tortured under Pinochet about their experience and asked for narration of that experience and also what their lives had been like since. And so, you know, that was incredibly important in, mm -hmm. in my chapter on Chile and Argentina and everything that happened in the, mostly in the 70s and 80s in South America that chapter couldn't have been written without that on the ground discussion, looking at records and talking to people that happened there. But in other cases where the history is incredibly well documented already, uh, for instance, with the Nazi camps, there's still so much more to do, but to fit it into one chapter by far the biggest chapter of the book, but still just one chapter of the book, there was less original research I yeah. needed to do for that but I wanted to see as many of the camps as possible to look for thematic relationships between them to really explore the, the physical environs of Auschwitz, for instance, and Dachau. So it, it varied depending on the site and how well-researched it was already. I wonder uh, what it was like for you to write this book after the Nabokov book, because it strikes me that despite these links um, between Nabokov's brother, for example, and uh, the story of concentration camps, I would imagine that the process is so different. I mean, in Nabokov's case, you have a person who has a, an unbelievably, you know, an unbelievably prolific writer who's got a defined canon of texts that you can draw upon. He's written his own autobiography. He's written about, uh, you know, um, so much in the press. And the, the focus of um, One Long Night is really, in many respects, trying to recover these voices, as you just talked about, who are difficult to get at, who are not well-known, who are in, essentially invisible. Uh, was it a very different process of writing for you, or did it feel like it followed a kind of familiar arc? Um, well, they're the only two books I've written so far, so they feel similar <laughs> yeah. to the degree that I guess I've sort of learned how to write books while writing both of them. And I would say they're similar in that Nabokov was born in Russia and then moved to Germany where his father was assassinated and then fled to France after Hitler came to power and then fled France on one of the last boats that made it out of harbor before France fell and then was in the U.S., you know, as, this, as you mentioned, this multiple exile. And his life took place across basically most of the history of concentration camps. And so he was a global person and this history that had so much to do with the concentration camps was also the history that drove him across the planet, you know, halfway around yeah. the globe. And so, you know, they both are an attempt to help readers understand that they know about this one thing. They might know about Lolita or they might know about his autobiography, Speak Memory, which is, you know, a beautiful literary creation. Um, or they might have heard of Auschwitz, or maybe they even visited Auschwitz. They have little pieces of this. Always as a journalist and an author, I want to take something people think that they already know about and then give them that context that actually might turn everything they know into a different story. Mm -hmm. So while the history I had to cover 
and the the breadth of it um, varied a lot. You know, Australia didn't have anything to do with Nabokov, but it had to do with the camps. You know, my goal is sort of the same thing. It, it is actually, as you were talking about that dilemma sometimes between a good story and context, I want to show people that sometimes the context is a story yeah. and that can be a really powerful story. Yeah. So um, you're such a traveler. As an undergrad, you were, you studied, was it foreign policy? It was, yeah, I was at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Foreign so Service. I didn't actually travel much during my uh, years there because I was working full time to put myself through college, but um, I wanted to. I certainly envisioned that and I wanted to study international affairs and, and international relations. So these books definitely relate very much to that undergraduate work. What is it like for you when you're traveling? Do you enjoy a lot of this travel? I think you did by yourself. Uh, do you enjoy traveling alone? And as you're in these places, really trying, I guess, to to have an experience of, of what these places are like, um, are you able to kind of live in the moment or are you always kind of writing in your head? Uh, I try to write in transit. So on the trains or on the planes, because I do think if you don't get things down, you lose them, you know, and that's really important. And sometimes it's a very small detail. I remember there was just a description of the fences in the camps uh, in Myanmar that were at the edge of the sort of the region in which they're kept outside this town of Situé. And that that became something that I wanted to use later. And so you just try to notice all those things, not Sometimes you know right away what you want, but other times it's not until later that you realize you need a piece of that. And I feel really strongly, I don't want to just go off what I think maybe I remember seeing. I feel much more confident if I've really yeah. written it down at the time. But when I'm interacting with people themselves, I really try, um, unless it's a subject that is just too frightened and put off by a recorder, to just record it because I don't want to be caught up in not listening to what they're saying. And I always take notes even while I'm recording. But if if there's a moment where I really just need to be with them in the interview and because of some particular emotional thing that's happening in a moment or, or something, then the, the, I have sort of the two systems and the recorder hopefully is always there. I mean, I've had one or two horrible incidents where things weren't there later, but for the most part, you know, that works out. And so I there are people like John McPhee who talk about not using recorders. And I just... I can't imagine that life, you know, like that would be terrifying to me. Um, also, <laughs> yeah. I want some documentary proof, you yeah. know, like if somebody questions it, because I think people, they should say, what, what are your sources? Where did you get this from? Did you go to this place? How do you know this? And sure. yeah. when you were asking the question about concentration camps before, I am 100% fine if somebody reads through my book and says, no, I still think Auschwitz is the only thing we should call a concentration camp. I don't need people to, um, I'm not selling something that it's important yeah. to me that they buy. I want them to understand a life and a story and has, the history behind it. And some of the best conversations I've had about my books have been with people who disagreed with parts of it. And, you know, but I hope if I present them well-sourced, reliable information, it can give them something new that we can have a discussion about. Yeah. And also the links, I think, um, they're just, they're, there are a lot of very interesting links. I mean, as I was reading your book, um, and granted, I'm kind of bringing my own, I guess, perspective to this, but it made me think that, wow, at the same time that you have all of these technologies of detention that are 
evolving in the late 1800s through the 1900s, you have these technologies of travel that are developing simultaneously. And, uh, you know, so R Richard Jobes uh, was on recently talking about youth travel um, during and after World War II in Europe and the rise of backpacking. And I'm like, wow, at the same time that youth are, you know, throwing off the chains of, uh, you know, conservative culture, you have the development of these technologies of, of mass incarceration. It's so it's so interesting. And and, you know, the other link or, or interesting thing I thought and I just wanted to get your take on it was you have this really profound quote by us, the Austrian painter uh, Cohen Portheim. Is that am mm -hmm. I pronouncing his name correctly? You are. Who is uh, interned in Britain, uh, Great Britain, I guess the Isle of Man during World War One. And he he wrote about it later and he said, try to imagine what it means to never be alone and never know quiet, not for a minute, and to continue thus for years. And it was making me think, my God, it sounds almost like the, you know, the guys who are overwintering in the Arctic for, uh, you know, two seasons at a time, this kind of experience of no privacy, and yet at the same time, profound isolation. I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yes, well, first to the technology question, I think camps are so tied up with these technologies that we often think of as being wonderfully useful and helpful to humanity. And it sort of just shows that technology itself can be a very neutral thing that, you know, it can kind of go either way. And I remember my surprise, even after a few years of looking at this, just that there was this, there's sort of the Ur camp, the, the beginning camp that later helped shape the idea of what the gulag will be on uh, this monastery, uh, Solovki, just north of the Russian mainland. And it's this incredibly isolated place and, uh, you know, is sort of horrific for that reason. And then I was going through, I think it was the New York Times, and I saw in the 1930s that that the Soviet Union had established like an airport and like airway, you know, airplane service yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, it's sort of, it is still this isolated place. It, would, it was very hard for people to escape from it, although some did, you know, but at the same time, some of the very technologies perfected in the 19th and 20th centuries were what made this kind of detention possible. I think of the, you know, the train systems in the Gulag and in Nazi Germany. I think of the airplanes, the bodies were dumped out of, you know, with the French in yeah. Algeria and then later in Argentina under the military mm -hmm. dictatorship. I mean, you know, transport, um, when you want to lock a bunch of people up, the idea of the concentration camp is taking them out of regular society. And how do you do that? You know, you need technology to do that. And you need technology for surveillance of them. And you need technology of detention, which is why I think we see this phrase emerge and all this happen. Uh, the concentration camps show up right after the patenting of barbed wire and the production, mass production yeah. of automatic weapons. It sort of becomes possible because of technology for this modern idea of camps that we have. But as far as this idea of um, the tension between how terribly lonely it is and yet how you're never away from other people, I think that mm. we see that again and again. And uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote wonderfully about it. I'm not going to try to quote it because I'm sure I'll get the quote wrong, but basically talking about how the neighbor who like, slurps his soup <laughs> becomes just unbelievable, almost physical torture, you know, even though they're facing sometimes real torture in these places, just that lack of control. And that was something that came up in all the different kinds of camps from internment camps that weren't particularly lethal 
to death factories, you know, that people who survived talked about was it was the powerlessness of the situation and the understanding that you had no idea if you would survive in some cases, or even if you had a good idea that you would survive, let's say Japanese American internment during World uh-huh. War II. You didn't, you didn't know when it would end. You know, it was this powerlessness of just indefinite detention that created, as Paul Cohen Portheim was saying, the painter you quoted earlier, this uh, mental illness, uh, really actual mental illness among almost, I think he said he didn't know anyone who hadn't been touched by it. Mm. Yeah. That, and, and as I was thinking about uh, what you were just saying, I, I, it made me think, you know, the real difference between this and the people who are, uh, let's say, on the Antarctic station for uh, overwintering is that they're they're there because they want to be. And at least they have the uh, the control of uh, of making the decision to go and that they pretty much know when they're going to leave, or at least they hope they know when they're going to leave. Um, and the people that you're looking at have none of that control and none of that knowledge. Um, you actually, to bring it back to the Arctic, though, you actually just completed a trip to Svalbard, the uh, Arctic archipelago, a few months ago, and you were writing about it for the Washington Post. I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little about that. Yeah, well, my um, I've known for a while that I wanted my next book to be about the Arctic, and I'll save until that's all announced exactly what that will be. But I really felt it was critical, even though I had been looking at this history for a little more than a decade now, that I wanted to go before I actually put together a book proposal, which is what you do when you're a nonfiction author, as I am, is you you have to sort of describe what the book you want to write is and why you're a great person to write it and include some sample writing that would be, mm-hmm. you know, reasonably expected to appear in the book. And you put this proposal together and you try to get somebody to give you an advance to actually do the research and write it. And so I I thought it would be more practical to approach publishers having actually gone to the Arctic. But I also just yeah. feel as a researcher that it's one thing to read all of this stuff and it's another thing to be in that place. And I thought it would be transformational even just to make one trip. And so this was the first time that before I had ever sent anything off to a publisher, I decided I would spend that money, you know, which I don't, I'm a writer, I don't have a lot of money. And so that, yeah. that I thought that was important. So I went to Svalbard for a little over a week. In the wintertime. In the wintertime. It was important to me. Uh, I was interested in these people who'd overwintered and it was important to me to go into the interior and see what it was like when there's no sun, you know, there's no sun at all. And I got there a little too late for their to not be even any sunlight. The sun never cleared the horizon, but as you know from having been, that there are periods of weeks in which it sort of teases up to the edge of the horizon and you'll see almost like a dawn starting on the horizon and then it just disappears again. And so I was there when it was no actual sun above the horizon, but we would get this little glimpse uh, of that. And um, it was fascinating and it, it was transformational to go. And I had wanted to, I often think that one should have a purpose all my travel, I think, generally has some kind of purpose. I'm not an aimless traveler, uh, and it's just a personal preference, I guess. But for writing, you know, if I wanted to understand something about the Arctic, I thought I should do something while I was there. And I had happened to have someone I met just on social media who had invited me to northern Wisconsin. Uh, her name is Blair Braverman, and she's she's quite a phenomenon on Twitter. And she had invited me to go learn how to be a, a musher, to join her and learn how to dog sled. And that mm-hmm. was, 
I guess about a year and a half ago now. And so when I was talking about that, I wanted my next book to be about the Arctic. She said, you should go work at a kennel there. And I actually wrote, I wrote two kennels that were on Svalbard and asked them if I could come and basically volunteer for room and board for a month, thinking I would then work in the Arctic for a month, which I have two small kids. So this would be a lot to organize, (laughs) but I thought it would be worth it. And she wrote me a nice supporting letter saying that I had done a great job there learning to mush from her and that uh, I had done a phenomenal job chopping up a frozen otter with an ax to feed the dogs, (laughs) which I figured would get people's attention. And one kennel like wrote back or one kennel didn't even answer. And the other one wrote a very nice note back saying that they were actually staffed up, but they would let me know if, if anything came free. And of course I wouldn't be running the tours or anything. I would have just been handling the dogs and, you know, I would have, it would have been grunt work, but that would have been interesting. And so when I realized I wasn't going to get that arrangement set up, then I decided I would actually go on one of their dog sled expeditions. And so the Uh people that had responded to me, I wrote back and made arrangements to do a three day expedition to the interior. That's awesome. And um, did it actually uh, match your expectations? You said it was a transformational trip. Were there aspects of it that were unanticipated or, you know, you didn't, hadn't, hadn't anticipated? Um, Yes. Uh, One of the things I learned is it's very different to do a, a, you know, three or four mile loop with somebody who's put four dogs on uh, and who is teaching you how to do this. And then it's another thing to actually be in the interior of the Arctic <laughs> where the guide is up somewhere ahead on a sled. And maybe it's, you know, it is dark because there's no sunlight and you see a little headlamp bobbing far in the distance and he goes around a corner and then there's nothing. <laughs> You're looking and you don't see anybody. You just see the interior and maybe it's snowing really hard and maybe it's icy and the sled is slipping to places it's not supposed to be going. There, What I learned was that in actual mushing, Things go wrong all the time, and the process of mushing is largely developing the skills to solve those crises as they arise, most of the minor, thank goodness, and to just try to keep a calm head and deal with things as they come up. But I find that's sort of the lesson of the kind of travel that I do. I mean, you know, when I went into the Rohingya camps, you know, I had letters of permission that were supposed to get me in from the federal government, but the state government decided they weren't going to let me in. And at that point, I'd already come halfway around the world. And so I made arrangements to sneak in. And so that involved getting in the back of somebody's truck that I was told would pull up. And I I know the guy's name, his nickname, but I have no idea who he really is. And I'm counting on certain networks. And and I've tried to vet those networks, but you know, it's a certain having confidence that you'll deal, trying not to do anything too stupid, trying to let somebody know where you're going and trying to deal with things that come up in the moment. And so I learned to deal with the unpredictability. And in fact, like to anticipate that that's often the best part of a trip is the things you didn't know were going to happen. But just the landscape itself was just is astounding. You know, it was, it's so different than anything that I had seen. So it was not just the experience of the trip itself, but just also, I find it both sort of wonderful and alienating to be in these completely different worlds than I've ever lived in. Andrea Pitzer, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I enjoy the podcast quite a bit, so it's fun to be on it. That's it for today. 
The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.